Have you ever wanted to see for yourself what the Bible has to say? Well, you've come to the right place. Join me, Pastor Tom Marsis, and Vicar Aidan Moon as we explore the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, provide you with some landmarks and guideposts along the way. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures. Welcome to Trek Through the Scriptures, episode 16, The Fall of Israel. My name is Pastor Tom Marsis, Senior Pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. I'm Vicar Aiden Moon. And we're glad that you're with us as we continue our trek through the scriptures, uh, beginning with Genesis all the way through Revelation. This week, uh, we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 20 through 2 Kings chapter 19. As we're going through the book of Kings, we spent a lot of time last week kind of setting some groundwork, giving some perspective. So definitely, if you didn't already, go back and listen to that episode. It'll help you to understand kind of what we're working with as we go through the book of Kings, because it is a book of history. And just like history, there's moments when we're, you know, in history class, there's some events that are really exciting and interesting, um, somewhat dramatic. And then there's some stuff that's a little bit more dry. And that's true of this book too. Um, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of names to keep straight. We talked about Rehoboam and Jeroboam last week. Uh, we'll also get into this section of the book. We have, we've talked a lot about Elijah, but now we have Elisha. So, Again, these are names that are all getting mixed up in our heads as we read. So we have to kind of take our time, be a little bit methodical, um, and don't be too worried if you get a little confused at some times. What I would really suggest is uh, taking a little piece of paper. You don't need a big piece of paper uh, or a little note card and write down uh, some of these names just to try to keep them straight. And part of keeping the name straight is making sure that you understand which uh, names really go and are principally with the Northern Kingdom, Israel, and which are really with the Southern Kingdom, Judah, to somewhat keep it straight. It's very easy otherwise to get a little bit confusing. And last time, one of the things I mentioned is, as we were talking about uh, the escape or the exodus from Egypt and the 40 years wandering, we kept referring to the people as the children of Israel, obviously the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now in this section... And going forward, the northern kingdom is referred to exclusively as Israel. The southern kingdom, which is really the two tribes of Israel, of Benjamin and Judah, is referred to as Judah. And so from here forward, you're going to hear Judah and Israel and know that it's the northern and southern kingdom. So it's, it's kind of very important to keep that straight. And it makes the story make a lot more sense if you're aware of that, because there's it's labeling good and bad kings and placing them in each of those uh, locations, recognizing that they're operating parallel to each other. It's it's helpful to see that. Um, and it's also helpful to kind of have that big picture view that Israel is consistently more corrupt. They are consistently dragged into different pagan practices. They have separated themselves from the central religious life and their kings are power hungry and violent people who consistently just ruin the kingdom more and more and more. One of the characters that's really, a, one he's really the biggest example of this in the kingdom of Israel is King Ahab. He's very well known in that regard. And maybe his wife is even more well known in her name, Jezebel. Uh, that marriage ends up doing more damage to the kingdom of Israel than, than anything else up to that point because she really is pushing the worship of a specific pagan god, um, Baal. 
And Baal worship becomes a really big problem. And it's something that the prophet Elijah goes head to head with quite a bit. And as we're going through this, uh, I just want to reference back to some of the early discussions we had in our trek through the scriptures, and that is that God is a God of history. He works in and through history. And why that's really important as we go through these books is, yes, there's a lot of historical events, there's a lot of historical references, uh, but yet it's not unimportant to the ultimate message of God working in and through his people. So that God is a God of history in our history, in the time of the scriptures, and so that he is working through these historical events, ultimately for his purpose, obviously ultimately bringing his son, but realizing that he is working in and through all these events that we're, that we're talking about here. And there's no kind of shiny, glowy mythology in this. It's earthy and political and uncomfortable for that reason sometimes. Um, it might not be the kind of idealistic picture that we might expect from a an important religious text, but that fact that God works through history remains very important because it keeps us grounded in real human life, uh, not trying to just get go off and find some sort of abstract concept to wrap our mind around but really focusing on the story of God's world and what has happened in it. Well, getting back now to Ahab and his wife Jezebel, this is really a great example of showing who's influencing who. Is society influencing the church or is the church influencing society? And the reason I say that is the children of Israel and the kingdom of Judah so often impacted by the worship life uh, of the peoples around them. And you have to also understand that when we start talking about Baal or Baal, it depends on, remember we talked about there's all these different ways yep. to pronounce <laughs> names, uh, to realize that it's a very semi-arid climate. They don't get a lot of rain. And so their gods, for the most part, are really viewed as fertility gods. In other words, the fertility of the soil. They're really asking the god to provide the weather, the moisture that's needed for the crops. Because without the crops, there is no kingdom. There is no life. And so their, their gods, the gods of the world and the kingdoms around Israel and Judah, really were uh, fertility gods and, and the focus on that. So what happens is that it's very enticing, however, as religions. Uh, they had temple prostitutes uh, for both men and women. And so you can see it's almost like the ancient pornography kind of thing. Okay, we're being enticed by that. And so there was this enticing nature. Oh, it's a part of worship. Well, I, I, can, I can agree to that. Um, and then so you can see how that influences the ultimate worship life of Israel and then at times in Judah. And this is why we hear Baal or Baal uh, talked about often, because it was a very enticing, uh, exciting religion, supposedly, and, and they were drawn to it. Uh, Luther describes, what, well, what is your God is the question, and it's what you put your fear, your love, and your trust in, ultimately, above all things. And so sometimes pagan worship for us in the 21st century seems a little bit foreign, but the the idea of putting your fear, love, and trust in an ultimate sense in certain things that you hope will accomplish something for you in life, 
that's pretty much the human condition. That's the default. I mean, that's in that sense, idol worship is just where humans live most of the time. We and and we can look around and we can ask ourselves the question, you know, what do I want most? What do I uh, care about the most? What do I think is going to fix my problems? What kind of promises am I believing? And that's really idols make promises and they make promises that they can't keep. Again, it's promise in this case of fertility, of of growth, of life for the soil, all of these kind of things. That's pretty enticing, but it's a promise that Baal can't keep. And there's actually kind of a mockery of of Baal throughout. A lot, that's one of Elijah's big jobs is to make a mockery of this, to reveal that it is powerless. This worship is powerless against just the uh, the normal work of creation, but also against God. God ultimately rules over creation. Nothing in the creation can uh, compete with him in that sense. And so rather than just seeing it as like, this is a kind of weird, why do they, why are they changing religions so much? Recognizing that it, it's really easy to see how when all of their neighbors have these, these gods that they're placing their trust in, it's pretty easy, easy for Israel to say, well, yeah, I, I want my crops to grow well too. So maybe that'll help. And it's into that kind of setting now that Elijah steps in. And Elijah is very firm in this is false. And Yahweh is more powerful. He is the God, not a God among gods, but the God. And what's really almost an exciting, as you read through here, is the challenge that Elijah takes up with uh, the prophets of Baal and that's you know building these uh building these altars and and the prophets for Baal are calling down and nothing happens nothing happens they're harming themselves nothing happened nothing happens and then Elijah douses his altar with water and <laughs> builds this moat around it you know and then God consumes not only the sacrifice but the altar itself and then in typical Old Testament fashion, then Elijah kills all the prophets of Baal, uh, which seems a little odd to us, but it, he's making clear the point, God is the one in charge and they were obviously standing in the way of God's message. When we hear the language of God being a jealous God, it's not necessarily a word we want to associate with God, but it means that he's not going to let humans uh, seek for their ultimate good in anything else. He's not going to let them worship anyone else. He's not going to suffer rivals for the hearts of his people. And ultimately, he's going to win hearts in a different way, but he's fighting for them in an active way through his prophets in the book of Kings. And now then after Elijah, we move to Elisha. And it's actually the passing of the guard, just like we had the passing of the guard from Moses to Joshua, you may remember uh, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua 1, verse 5, as I was with Moses, so shall I be with Joshua. As I was with Elijah, so shall I be with Elisha. And and we, we really see a very specific way that God is now passing the mantle on to Elisha, that he is going to be carrying the torch, so to speak, uh, bring the message to the people, declare God's promise, and uh, calling God's people back. And it's it's uh, very interesting seeing how God does that as he moves from Elijah to Elisha. We were reminded that the message doesn't stop with the death of any one person. Uh, that's true. That was true with Moses and Joshua, that 
it was really God's story. It wasn't Moses' story. Uh, for Elijah, for all of his power, for all of his intensity, for all of the great work he did for God, the 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 mission he carried out, the word he spoke, he wasn't the guy. He wasn't the main character of the story. He was going to pass on, and that continued passing on of the torch, the continued new new generation, new people to continue to do the work. It reveals like both our frailty and remembering we're only going to do what we do for so long, but also that the word of the Lord endures forever, as we like to say. Um, it sticks around. It's not going anywhere, even when we do. Well, what's really interesting here, now remember, Moses had led the children of Israel for 40 years. He had the the plagues of Egypt, uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, may, uh, manna and water and the desert. And yet what happens? He goes and dies and it tells us that God buried him. But Elijah, he goes up in this chariot of fire. like <laughs> He goes right into heaven on the chariot of fire. So it's just interesting. Well, wait a minute, Moses died. Uh-huh. You mean Elijah's going right up in heaven? So it is rather interesting how we see that God deals with his people in different ways. And, and uh, it just shows you that as great as the people of Israel would think and, and Judah would think of Moses, you know, here's Elijah. He goes up in the chariot of fire into heaven. There's always exceptions to the systems we build of, of theology and the the explanation for why. What, what is that all about? There's not necessarily a really good one from a human perspective in the sense we can try, but there's always exceptions to what we want. And I do think that uh, just as Elijah prefigures Christ in a lot of ways, we can see in it a, a prefiguring of Christ's ultimate ascension into heaven too that we'll see in the New Testament after his resurrection. But even then, it's still this sort of crazy event of, yeah, the chariot coming down from heaven in fire and flame and taking him away. You just got to imagine what it would have been like to be Elisha in that situation watching it happen. And well, and the themes that we see here, really, we get back now, as we talked about last week, the divided kingdoms, north and south, Israel being the northern kingdom, they'd rebelled with Jeroboam and all the kings and and their unfaithfulness, uh, consistently rebelling, uh, developing their own new worship and gods and so forth. But ultimately, uh, what's interesting is that they ultimately get conquered by Assyria. And Assyria, in the historical context, is a very brutal, uh, bloodthirsty uh, nation. Uh, they come in and they take everybody with them. They, they uh, repopulate uh, and they, they take them and then they disperse them. It's not like when the children of Israel uh, went down into Egypt and they were all in Goshen. So like they had their own section. They married amongst themselves. They had their own area, their own culture, their own religion. But when they take the Northern Kingdom away, they really spread them out and they intermarry with these other peoples. And basically because of what happened with the, the Assyria, they disappear. Uh, you'll hear one of the things that's often said, the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Well, that's because Assyria took them off and had them assimilate into all this other area. And basically they lost their identity as uh, sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they lost their identity as the kingdom of Israel and they disappeared. When in the New Testament, when you hear this, this kind of odd battle that there is between Samaria, uh, Samaritans and uh, and the 
Judeans, it can be a little confusing, but when you have this history in the background and you realize that those who live in Samaria are those who ha- are in that area that was the Northern Kingdom, and there's a lot of baggage there, both of the the rebellion, but also then of this intermarrying and intermingling where they're not really the same as they once were. It's this kind of mix of different religious practices and different peoples. And so that's that history is one reason why the people of Judah looked down very seriously on the, the Samaritans. And we'll talk more about them after uh, the Southern Kingdom comes back from their uh, captivity. So the, now the Southern Kingdom, they continued to be ruled, as we mentioned earlier, by Davidic kings from the Davidic line. They're more stable than Israel. They had more good kings, but they also had a lot of bad kings, and they oftentimes wandered away in pagan worship. Uh, but you know, they still focused on their worship in Jerusalem, in the temple, um, and while they would be return eventually, the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible would be revealed and and found again, uh, and they were attacked uh, by Assyria as well. But we're going to see in chapter 19, right near the end of our reading this week, but yet they were delivered by God. And part of that is the delivering of God's line, the continuing of the line of David, and and ultimately that that's the line that Jesus would come from. Yeah, what happened to Israel doesn't happen to Judah. They will face exile. They are going to, we're, we're getting down the line, and it's going to come to uh, Jerusalem itself being attacked and destroyed, Solomon's temple being totaled. That's coming as we get into our readings next week. But for now, uh, God has delivered them from that same fate that Israel faced. Uh, They're not going to be destroyed by Assyria. And that itself is a mercy in a way that God sustains and keeps that line of David going. And so uh, just a reminder, as we get into it, we're going to be seeing a lot of the works of the prophets coming up in, in the weeks and months ahead, but remembering that prophets essentially preachers called by God uh, to deliver his message, announcing uh, oftentimes his call to repentance, often uh, bringing them back to the the main thing, the main focus on God and his love for them and how he's delivered them and continues to work for their lives. And we do see that fulfillment uh, later in the New Testament, as we mentioned last week, with Elijah being one of uh, the prophets that was there with Moses, Elijah, and and Jesus, uh, as we celebrate celebrated the last Sunday before Lent, uh, as we see that, and then also being reminded that John the Baptist later will also have that connectivity to Elijah. Many think he is Elijah, come back from the dead, and it shows you the uh, reverence with which uh, the history historically that they remember and hold on to Elijah when. John the Baptist is seen in that manner. So there is a definite connectivity to the ultimate fulfillment as we find it in the Gospels later in the New Testament. And one thing to, to notice as you're reading through as well, and that's, again, this goes with that idea of prophets as preachers. Essentially, they're always pointing forward. They're sometimes pointing forward with this kind of condemnation of, hey, there's destruction coming, there's judgment, what we might call law. But they're also pointing forward ultimately to hope. Um, there's a lot less of that with Elijah than maybe we might like. As we get into some of the other prophets down the line, some of the prophetic books, we'll see a lot more of that. But there's also this hope. Um, the Davidic line is still going. God is still faithful. And there's going to be a deliverance coming for God's people again, and an ultimate one, a complete one, not one that is uh, 
going to go away with the next uh, next inrush of paganism that comes along. Um, there's going to be a complete and final victory for of God for his people. Well, thank you for spending your time with us as we continue our trek through the scriptures. We ask the Lord's blessings as you continue your trek through those scriptures from 1 Kings chapter 20 through 2 Kings chapter 19 this week. And may the Lord continue to bless your study in his word and bless you with his spirit. Each week, as people read through the scriptures on our trek, they find questions and they email them, they text them to us. And so this week, as people were going through uh, the readings, one of the questions was about mules. Why was King David and his family, his sons, often referenced specifically riding a mule? Yeah, there's a few different speculations on why this is. Um, mules kind of have a weird reputation in our in our culture and world. They're seen as kind of funny looking or maybe a little bit goofy. They're not necessarily royal seeming animals. Um, but in and of themselves, mules aren't aren't like a not not a royal animal. And they're actually pretty powerful and strong animals, even if they're kind of stubborn. And, uh, you know, Israel is a pretty treacherous terrain in some places. And so it would be beneficial to have an animal that could, could move around within that. Um, but also there's a few other ideas. One is that they would have been more rare um, because crossbreeding of animals was not allowed in the Mosaic law. Um, you would have had to buy a mule from a neighboring nation, from someone else. So this was would have been a more rare and specialized animal. Another thing is that as in, in the past, horses were actually smaller than what we're used to today. And a mule would have actually been bigger than the average horse. Um, and that's still true sometimes today. But you would see um, on the battlefield, for example, someone who was riding a mule would be taller and would be able to see over more of uh, their opponents. And so we see mules referenced, again, like you said, in, in regards to David's family. Um, David's son Absalom rides a mule. That's what he's riding when he gets his hair caught in the tree. Um, and then specifically, uh, David puts Solomon on his own mule when he's crowned king, and then he rides into to Jerusalem like that, which as we're coming out of in out of Palm Sunday and we're in this Holy Week, you can kind of see this connection of uh, riding in and uh, not on a donkey like Jesus, but on a mule. There's some similar imagery there as he comes in as the new king. So it is, a, it is I wouldn't say the most significant detail in the world, but there's a few different reasons that people have reflected on as why uh, a mule would have been a consistent beast of burden and, and riding animal for the kings of Israel and Judah. Thanks for joining us on our trek through the scriptures this week. This podcast is a ministry of Zion Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. To contact us, learn more, or for more resources on our journey this year, please visit zionbismarck.org or find us on social media. This podcast was made possible by a grant from Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We thank them for their support. Please join me in prayer as we begin our new week. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. 
that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time as we continue our exploration of God's story in the scriptures. God bless your reading this week.